And it's five o'clock in the morning, so this is just going to be quieter than it normally is. And now, coming to you from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very, very, very special guest, the multiple award-winning author, Aliette de Bardard, who joins us from somewhere in France. Hello, Aliette, and hello, Gary. Good morning. Hello. Well, uh, you're having a lot. Aliette, thanks for... you. You haven't been with us for years now, have you? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's been a while. Quite a while. And you've had a lot of interesting things going on since then. And the thing we want to actually uh, celebrate, I guess, is Fireheart Tiger, which has only been out uh, for a week or so now or a couple of weeks. Yeah, 10 days. Getting great responses. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really, I mean... um, there's got to be a word that makes us shocked and elated, and I'm a writer, so obviously I can't think of it right now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's that's been mostly my reaction to seeing all of it on the internet and going like, "Oh wow, okay, that's that's scary, exciting, and and also scary." Well, I guess the question way. is, well, yeah, well, I guess the question is to start with maybe since it has been a. A, a, a while is, I think, the last time we would have sat down, any of us together, would have been in Dublin in 2019 yeah. at the World Science Fiction Convention. So how have things been for Elliot, the writer, since then? You, you've been keeping busy. You've had a novel out, as, as I recall. You completed the um, you know, the trilogy. Yeah. So How's I've, everything been going? So I published the last volume in the Dominion of the Fallen trilogy, The House of Sundering Flames. Yeah. I think it may yep. already have been out in Dublin in the UK, but not the US, as I recall. Because I, I remember I, I was arguing with uh, John, my agent, well, arguing, discussing uh, font options for the US, mm-hmm. uh, the US version. Then let's see. Uh, I had my short story collection come out uh, of... Um, uh, ooh, of, of wars, wars and, and memories, memories and starlight, and starlight. Yeah. yeah from sub press of and press uh and then i published of dragons feasts and murders which was a sort of spin-off from dominion of the fallen which was a kind of more um funnier kind of uh a little quieter uh court drama slash family return thing featuring two of the characters from the book um well, and then Seven, Seven of Infinities, Infinity. yes, came out in October from Subterranean Press, which was uh, is basically we have uh, we have um, a gentleman thief called Arsène Lupin in France, who's kind of like our version of um, so he's our version of Sherlock Holmes, right? So he breaks the law and he sleeps with a lot of people, which I guess is a very French set of French <laughs> things to do. Um, and also, he's got all those great plans and he loves drama, and most of those things blow up in his face, including the love affairs. He's got terrible, terrible, terrible tastes. <laughs> In love affairs, it's like, dude, dude, no, 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 not this woman. She's a career criminal. Can you not see? She's going to try to kill you. Oh, she did. Oh, and you're unhappy. Oh, okay. So I kind of of wanted to take that character and then make him into a sentient spaceship because that's what I do, really. Um, And have the sentient spaceship then have an adventure, which was a a very typical adventure of like, there is an injustice and I must write it, but also I can't really tell the person who I am or they would run away and go like, uh, why are you helping me? You're like a thief and you're wanted by all the police um, in so the it's, it's, universe. It's like Lupin. Uh, Arsène uh, uh, Lupin, the, who am I thinking of? Maurice, Le, Maurice Leblanc. Leblanc. Yeah. 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 Um, 
the, the, but there's also, and I thought this when I was reading um, Seven of Infinities, he talks like Lord Peter Whimsey too. Mm-hmm. Like he's, 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 he's essentially, you're right, he's a spaceship, but essentially he's an aristocrat compared to the student that he's working with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah. Although to me, that's part of her disguise, right? Of Sanaswith's disguise is that she's passing herself off as a... Um, as a as an aristocrat, right. uh, and that sometimes, especially when she's talking to some of the other characters, I tried to, I mean, I tried to sort of make the speech go down a few notches in terms of register. Um, you, I mean, it's uh, it's very visible in the book, and it's easier to do in French than English, I think, where mm-hmm. his speech goes all over the place depending on who he's impersonating, and he impersonates quite a few people. Um, so you're writing about sentient spaceships. Yes, the world's ticking along. We're we're engaged in a conversation you and I about working together at that time, and at some point, you, you know, the idea for Fireheart Tiger comes to you. Mm-hmm. Where, where does Fireheart start? Uh, well, I guess it's it's several things. It's uh, so I went to Copenhagen when I cannot remember when I went to Copenhagen, but it was during the winter, and we visited uh, Christian Borg. Uh, which is now the parliament, but used to be the, the the palace of the monarchy, right? And it's notable because it burned down three times. Uh-huh. Um, and, and while I was going through the castle and looking at stuff, I actually discovered that, especially in Scandinavian countries, there is a fine tradition of castles burning because you had to heat the places up, right? And yeah. they were made of stone and wood mm-hmm. and... These things did not play nicely together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of fascinated by that idea of like having those huge, and obviously you get huge fires like, you know, the London fire sure, sure. Uh, uh, in Paris, you've had a few as well, right? So there's there's a number of like, I guess this, this image of a, a conflagration of a palace wouldn't leave me. And in particular, I thought of a young woman whom everybody had forgotten, who was trying to make it out of the palace and, you know, palaces are huge places, right? So uh-huh. I was wandering down the corridors and I was like, well, if you were stuck there, tough luck, right? And everything was on fire. How would you actually make it out of there? It would, mm. it would be very traumatic as an experience, especially if, you know, you're there because everybody has forgotten that you exist. Um, the second thread was um, I was reading up a lot for Dominion of the Fallen and I never really got a chance to, um, to use that research in the book, but I was reading up a lot in what happened in Vietnam during the immediate pre-colonial period, which mm-hmm. is, uh, well, not only Vietnam, but Southeast Asia. and But especially Vietnam was in a very, very precarious place because a lot of political upheavals happened. Uh, and while those political upheavals happened, uh, they actually struck an alliance with the French in order to um, get men, manpower and guns um, so the deposed, um, at the time he was just a warlord. Uh, so the deposed warlord, uh, Nguyen, um, I cannot for the life of me remember his first name, but his last name was Nguyen. Uh, anyway, he would later become the emperor Yadun. Um, he, um, he, he got, uh, deposed by a rival dynasty and he made a deal with the French to get guns and manpower in order to, um, well, to get the throne, right? Mm. Uh, and he sa- he actually sent his uh, son, uh, who was five when he left and seven when he arrived in Versailles, 
to both protect him and as a kind of, you know, good faith token of this is so important that I'm sending my son, right? Um, and at the time, the son made quite a sensation at the Versailles court. And at the time, the circumstances being what they were, it was right before the French Revolution. So the court was bankrupt. They soon, you know, walked back on the agreement because it didn't really interest them. But um, but I wondered what would have happened if things had played out differently and they'd actually been interested in leaning in on this. And the history of Southeast Asia is mostly filled with countries where, you know, if you make that kind of bargain with a Western power, generally the Western power then comes in and says, hi, it's me, remember me? Mm-hmm. Now you have something I want. Uh, and then they push in. So a lot of the book was also me trying to, I guess, rewrite some of the history of Vietnam, both in terms of having a a stronger and more aggressive French presence and also having um, a different issue, right? Because part of, part of the frustrating thing in reading all those histories is I know how it ends, right? I know that you have the, the Treaty of Saigon followed by the Treaty of Hue and Vietnam loses their independence for like 150 years, right? That's the way it played out. And it's really hard to see this when I was reading it as anything other than like a very, very, very infuriating and heartbreaking tragedy of like, no, do not do this. Do not like, do not go to the French for your political alliances. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. Um, so I kind of wanted to put all of that in a book. Uh, and then, you know, I also wanted to make it sapphic, which was of interest to me, which mm. meant that all of this meant that it had to be alternate history, secondary world fantasy, because like, you know, there's been no empress in Vietnam since uh, the 15th century. And that's arguable. It was a regent. So if I really wanted to put women in positions of power, if I really wanted to have princesses who were playing overt political games, as opposed to playing, you know, um, games of um, sexual and uh, romantic influences, um, I was going to have to shake things up a bit. So that's how we ended up with the country of Benhai, which means the quiet sea and is really a sort of analog for Vietnam. Small, beleaguered, bad political position, making terrible, terrible life choices. Uh, And the character of Than, who's the princess and who gets sent abroad to this palace, who then burns, right? and only escapes through, it seems to her, blind luck, and is haunted uh, literally and metaphorically by this fire years later. And elemental. And elemental, yeah. But elementals are part of Vietnamese mythology as well as European mythology, I take it. Uh, Well, you have the elements, and then you have animals associated with the elements, so Mm. I think you can make a case for it. Uh, It's... uh, So... Usually with fire, the animal that's associated with fire, I can't remember which one it is, but it's not that one. So what I did was I took... Which one? Salamanders are frequently associated with fire. Yeah, and I was thinking in in Vietnam, you've got the five cardinal directions, north, south, west, east, and then the center. And one of these is associated with fire. And for the life of me, I cannot remember which, which one it is. I think it's the bird, the southern bird, but I could be wrong. But anyway, so what I really wanted was to take... uh, so the tiger is a really interesting, like, it's the Vietnamese equivalent to wolves, really, right? It, um, mm-hmm. It's an animal of prey that lives in the jungle and that's going to eat you given half a chance. It's it's darkness, it's hunger, it's all those things that are, you know, you, that are the reason that you really shouldn't be out at night. It, you know, it embodies those things. 
And, and there's lots of legends about how the tiger hates man. And one of them is man burnt his stripes into him. And that's the reason why mm -hmm. the tiger has, you know, always hunted man down is because he got burnt. So I thought it would make sense to actually have that, the memory of that uh, as a link between fire and tigers. Um, one of I the mean, things, you know, it's, uh, well, 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 I get to play around that, a bit. It struck me about uh, the novel. It's something I've noticed before that uh, in, a, in a number of your stories, you write about vastly unequal relationships. Yeah. Uh, someone who's enormous. I mean, the, the, I'm thinking of, um, well, there, there's a little bit of that in uh, Seven of Infinities. There's a lot of it in The Vanisher's Palace, certainly. And, and, and I've always thought that that has something to do with the Vietnamese theme because you're, Vietnamese has not only made uh, unholy bargains with Western countries, but you always have China sitting there. Um, and this is the first one where I could see the unequal relationship between the two principles paralleling exactly the unequal relationship between the two countries involved. Yep. Which makes it a political romance, doesn't it? Uh, it it does. I mean, I was I was trying to have the external reflect some of the internal, right? And I think, yeah, I think you're right about some of the. I guess I'm just, you know, um, Vietnam, as you point out, you know, has always been in a kind of inferior position to, you know, if it's if it's not if it wasn't within the orbit of China, then it was within the orbit of France. And there have been periods of time where it was independent, but being raised as you know as part of uh, Vietnamese diaspora, you always become aware that, you know, you're not really the biggest fish in uh -huh. the pond and you will never, ever be the biggest fish in the pond because it's a small country, right? And it's sitting next to this giant other country uh, and the Western powers afterwards, right? But it's it's never going to be a country that has delusions of taking over the world because, well, it's small. Well, it's, it's mostly coastline things. and mountains. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's probably not unique to... Uh... No. To Vietnam, because, I, well, one of the, I, I just was rereading Immersion, as a matter of fact, because we should mention this, your story is the lead story of Lavi Tidar's uh, anthology oh. of world science fiction coming out. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay. Well, it's, it, 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 it's good. It'll be out in a couple of months. And um, but, but reading world science fiction, reading any Asian science fiction, reading Indian science fiction and Korean and, and some Japanese, which they're all, there's a kind of China anxiety throughout the rest of the world which American science fiction can't identify with at all. I mean, by and large, the assumptions behind uh, Anglo-American science fiction is that we've got our empire and we're going to hold on to it. Asians, uh, this is a horrible overgeneralization, obviously, but I'm a critic and we do this. Um, it's, it seems to me that Asian science fiction all, always has the shadow of China in the background. Uh, hmm. there's, there's an awareness that you're not, as you say, with Vietnam, you're not the biggest fish in, in, in the ocean. Uh, and, well, and I think yeah, that yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I think certainly in the current geopolitics of Asia, it's really hard to ignore China. And especially, you know, Vietnam is like sitting right. on the doorstep, mm -hmm. like we share a land border and a sea border and, you know, a thousand years of colonization. So that makes it, I mean, it's a very particular relationship as well because there's a lot of, you know, cultural... I don't know if calling it common grounds, but, you know, there's a lot of things that came through uh, colonization, which makes it a really interesting kind of relationship. And I mean, I remember seeing one take, which was, you know, that, you know, the, uh, I can't, what exactly was the take, which is that uh, 
oh, non-Chinese people were not allowed to write about Confucius because Confucius was uniquely Chinese. And I was like, oh, well, we need to talk about this, <laughs> right? And we need to talk about, you know, where Confucius is like being worshipped and what it actually means. Uh, so it, it's really it's really interesting. And I think I was trying to have some of that come through in Fireheart Tiger as well, because you have uh, Ngan Ki, which is the... Uh, the old colonizer of the Binhai. Uh, mm -hmm. And at some points, um, you see them as being obsessed with their relationship with each other, as being obsessed with protocol and showing that they behave correctly, they're behaving correctly. And that in my head was the colonized country still trying to prove that it was worthy by a set of external um, uh, criteria, right? That had been imposed by the former colonizer who's not here but who still casts a very long shadow. But it creates a lot of complications with the, uh, with, with, with the mythology and, and, and religion as well, because, I, I mean, how much, how much of Vietnamese mythology is mixed up now with Chinese mythology going back, again, a thousand yeah, years? Yeah, I don't know. I, th I think it's really, yeah, it's really complicated. I'm not really sure that I feel comfortable talking about it because, well, you know, um, trying to entangle cultural influences on anything is kind of, a tricky proposition. Well, it's, and it's much more tricky for those of us who are looking at it from the outside. I was, uh, I was reading a collection of stories by a Korean writer, which has a lot to deal with Buddhism. And I finally realized that trying to untangle all the threads of Buddhism from seven or eight different cultures over a period of a thousand years is pretty much hopeless. Uh, it's yeah, I tend to think that it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like Vietnamese food, right? Um, if you really want to, you could point out which dish came from where, but is there a point though, right? By that time, it's it's thoroughly ours, right? We've made it ours, so that's kind of how I feel about it, those kind of things. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you because when you're talking about the origin of the story earlier, you talked about being in a palace having the idea about the fire, someone being abandoned, all that kind of thing, and then coming to the sort of story you want to tell and thinking about the elements you want to bring into the world that you're going to bring in so that you can tell the story that's appealed to you and that you think is there to be told. I'm curious about the decision to fork from, if you like, uh, the, the world we're in to a secondary world. How far do you think you need to go? I mean, this strikes me as very similar to the kind of decision that Guy Gavriel Kay makes when he writes his fantasy novels. He forks to an alternate version of our world, but mm. sometimes, you know, sometimes not that far. And the reason is in many ways for similar reasons to the ones you've stated today, to be able to get to the story you want to be able to tell. Mm. So how do you decide, when do you decide, uh, how far from the world we're in you want to go to get to the world you need to be in to tell the story that is in front of you? I guess I guess it's mostly instinctive, right? It's a sort of, okay, I need to take it far enough. Are we far enough yet? No, I don't think so. It's too recognizable, right? Are we far enough yet? Are we far enough yet? Uh, there's levels of discomfort as well. I know we were talking about, for instance, um, I wouldn't, there are some names in Vietnamese history that I wouldn't be reusing because they're being worshipped today, right? And that would make me very uncomfortable with um, religious and spiritual issues. Um, sure. I didn't want to go too far because I wanted the analogy to still be there, if that makes sense, right? So I wanted mm -hmm. the reader, I didn't think it was a necessary feature to understand the story, but I thought that if you were a reader who actually knew 
some of the background, then you could find the bits that would resonate. Uh, yes. So that's why um, I kind of mixed and matched the geography, but I left it very similar in terms of mm -hmm. the countries and the similar situation. You can, you know, you can point to, okay, this country is the analog of this one. This country, we're not too sure, but you could trace it. Um, and then I think it's really, I mean, in this particular case, I don't think it was complicated because I wasn't dwelling too much into the inter-Asian politics. I think if I had been dealing more, if I had been dealing deeper, dwelling deeper into inter-Asian politics and having some kind, some things go very differently, or if I had had some fantastical explanations for events that could clearly be traced to a real world thing, I would have needed to take it a step further. Like, for instance, if I had been making some kind of supernatural explanation for the Vietnamese-American War, I would have needed to file a heck of a lot of serial numbers in order to make sure that I was not doing any harm because it's still, yeah. you know, I feel like having some kind of supernatural agency kind of cheapens the people who are caught in it. And also it's sure. still something that's very raw, understandably, yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. So um, if... If I had gone deeper into politics, I think I would have gone, okay, we need to mix and match a little. Do you think you get a sense? You, you, let, me, let me put it this way. Do, Viet, do you think that Vietnamese readers would see a different novel than the one we're seeing uh, from, a, from a, a European or American perspective? Obviously, they'd pick up a lot of illusions that I didn't pick up, although by and large, I think the, the, as, a, as a story, it's self-contained. And hmm. as a romance, it works for everyone. But I've often wondered about the different layers. I've wondered, uh, going back to the uh, Dominion of the Fallen, if Parisians read that differently from the way I do, because I'm I reading don't know it. About, yeah, I don't know about Parisians, but I have had Vietnamese write me fan mails, and it's clear that, you know, to them, they see familiar stories and they see familiar illusions. And I think I... I would guess that what they would get is some of the background, instead of being those very broad, kind of blurry strokes, they would be able to fill in a lot more of ah, these holes. Makes sense. Right. It would be more detailed for them because I left it vague because I didn't have space. And as you point out, it's a slim book. I have a focus and, you know, I have a job to do, which is not necessarily a detailed description of the scenery and mm -hmm. of the cultural mores and of everything. But I think they would they would be able to fill in some of these gaps. Yeah, the, which, which raises an interesting thing about the length of that. And, and your uh, novellas, novella lengths or short novel lengths seem to suit you very well. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is because of what you just said. You have a story to tell and you want to get in and get out of it. And the world building in this, I, I remember reading it at the time, that I could have imagined, well, without thinking of anybody in particular, I could imagine any number of fantasy writers turning this into 600 pages of world building, um, which, uh, which, is, which is fine. There are people who love 600 pages of world building and love to read about costuming for chapter after chapter after chapter. But if you've got a story to tell, it seems to me the, the decision you need to make is how much world building is necessary for the story or, yeah. as opposed to how, much, how, can I tell, how can I tell a story now that I've spent all the time building this world, which some writers seem to be doing. Well, I, I, you know, I, I certainly feel there's a place for, you know, as you say, books where there is a lot of world building and a lot of it is on display. And I mean, it, it's a genre where we love this, right? 
I'm mm. just not too sure as a writer, this is what I actually love. What I actually love most is having characters and a plot uh -huh. and then the world building in service to that as a sort of, okay, I need some texture. I need some ways to explain right. why my characters are doing this, but I kind of don't want to post too much and sort of unroll it all because I don't know, it feels not the thing I'd want to focus on, right? It's, there's nothing, again, there's nothing wrong with it, but you know, part of being a writer is I do get to pick what I like to write about. And that wasn't what was very interesting to me. And I don't actually think it's very interesting to me in general, right? I'm, I enjoy writing nonfiction about this is how we got to the world building. But uh -huh. when I'm writing, I'm like, okay, you take a back seat uh, and just provide me details. I need them now, but that's it, right? I'm not actually going to give a lecture on the past 300 years of history as seen through the eyes of this country. Well, I think you're also showing some respect for the reader and, and able to, and, and, and when it comes to filling out details. Uh, for, for example, uh, there's, a, there's a phrase that somebody, I think a British critic named Patrick Perinder came up with to describe mostly what Cordwain or Smith was doing. And the phrase was epic fables, where you write short stories that imply a vast future history, which you never mm -hmm. outline. And when I was reading, for example, um, uh, Seven of Infinities or The Tea Master and The Detective, and they're both set, as I recall, in the scattered pearls belt. And, belt, yeah. Um, so you have, a, you have a kind of whole history of the solar system implied in that. And part of what's fascinating about them is how much we don't know about it. Hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of, you know, um, just finding the right words, the right set of words in order to just like suggest a history, mm -hmm. right? Which the reader is free to fill as they will. And I'm, I try to pick the word, obviously, so, you know, that I channel a bit that they're not going to imagine something wildly different from what I need for the plot, right? But, right. Uh, but I feel like, well, I feel like it's actually, it's a little more work for the reader, granted, but I feel it actually gives more of an impression of something that is real, right? In the sense that history has holes. Uh, people don't, you know, I walk out of my door and I don't necessarily think about how long the cobblestones have been there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, or, you know, why my car is working or that sort of thing. So I think to me, that's, a, um, well, I wouldn't say easy because a lot of work actually goes into it, but uh, it's a quick way. <laughs> it's, it's a quick way to just be evocative without um, being too heavy about it. Right. But you're being consistent as well. I mean, one of the things that, I, as a reader, would know is would notice is if you said something. If you let's let's say I don't know, you said something in Seven of Infinities that seemed to contradict the solar system that we'd seen earlier, hmm. that would be noticed. So you have to kind of watch, watch which stones you're stepping on. Well, I I do have a Bible that uh, tries to take care of. Okay, these are the places <laughs> I've mentioned. No, I did start a Bible when I started working on Seven of Infinities because. Uh, Actually, part of what I did when I was writing Seven of Infinities was I need some measurement. It was really silly. It was, I need some measurement units because they wouldn't be using the kilometer, me the, met the metric hmm. system. They wouldn't be using the imperial system. What would they be using and how can I call them? And I was like, if I'm going to go to all that work of actually putting together like, you know, a standard <laughs> unit system, I'm just going to do it once. That's it. We're doing it once. Uh, 
So, do, do you think that's actually something that's underappreciated by readers of some of these things? The amount of structural imagining that has to go on to make the story they see function and be believable. That you know, there's that thing about you know the, the, the amount of the story that sits below the waterline of the iceberg, but it still has to be there. But also for the story up there to work, it has to stay below the waterline. Yeah. Otherwise, the whole story bogs down and becomes yeah, well, unpalatable. I, well, I think I think it's underestimated, but I think it's a feature, not a bug, right? Because yeah. if to a reader it should be effortless, you should be seeing the one tenth of the iceberg and think, oh, of course, yeah, that's really what I have, right? And the fact that the, the other nine tenths are actually keeping the iceberg floating, right, is yeah. is great. But you don't actually need to be aware of how much of the mass there is other than, okay, it's floating. It's an iceberg. It works, I think. Particularly since, I guess, the point of your stories, and with Fireheart, the point of Fireheart is that Tan is in in, in an environment where she is being bullied and forced and manipulated by other people and has to find herself. It's not how they happen to sail their ships to get to her. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, and, um, and yeah, and and yeah, and especially yeah, I kind of it's what we're talking about with focus, right? Uh, yeah, I chose a particular point of focus, and in the book I'm working on, I'm actually dealing with that as well, which was um, it's in the middle, it's uh, ending in the middle of a huge space battle, and I'm like, but actually, the focus is wrong if we're doing just military maneuvers, right? It's just I don't know. I feel like each book to me makes a choice of where you pitch the plot. Well, where I pitch the plot, really, uh, and then that pitch has to remain consistent or to slowly widen, but certainly not to, you know, at the last minute go like, hey, you got the book wrong, because that's generally a good way to have readers throw the book at a wall and entirely justifiably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bait and switch is not a great, I mean, if you can pull it off, it's great, but it does require a lot of work. <laughs> Well, I, I guess to me, I've been I've been following the reception of Fireheart, and it's interesting to me because there's a lot of talk about the romance which works in the book, which I think works very, very well. But it also feels to me like it's it isn't the core of the book. Hmm. To me, the core of the book is the power dynamics in the story and the change in the protagonist Tan over time. You know, that to me is what gives the entire uh, story its power and its impact. Hmm. Um, and so I'm curious as to, first of all, whether that reading of it aligns with your intention with it and how important discussing those kind of power dynamics in story is to you. Well, to me, it was very much, um, so to me, it was a story of like, uh, a woman who had grown up in a totally toxic, unhealthy environment. And as a result in a series of toxic, unhealthy environments, actually, you know, it starts with her mother, but then it goes on. Uh, presumably in the court where she's a guest, quote unquote, at, uh, and who understands instinctively that this is not right, but doesn't actually have any of the healthy models which would enable her to actually see what's right. And so follow this by going into another unhealthy, abusive, toxic relationship, which promises freedom, but in fact is not, right? And Mm. it's a... was well, a very classic pattern for starters. Uh, but to me, that was the core of the story is a sort of the realization by Than that actually there are healthy relationships and none of them are the relationships that she's actually having, um, except for one, right? The one she has with Yang, the fire elemental. And uh, that, that to me was the, um, the trajectory 
and yeah. the heart of the book. And, and, and also, I guess, finding a way to, at the end of it, because one thing that happens in some stories is a secondary character comes in and rescues, changes, whatever else. In making the transformation and the uh, the responsibility for changing the, uh, Than's story her own. You know, yeah. At the end of this story, without giving away anything about the, the details of it for readers who are yet to read Fireheart, which I don't think even now we have, uh, this is a story of someone who comes into themselves and takes control of their own world. And yes, they're given support to do that by one character, but at the end of the day, it really is them themselves coming to change their world. And that's really what makes the story really yeah. sing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I mean I, I I read a book on abusive dynamics and one of the things that really struck me about it was um what if there was no knight in shining armor? And then the book skips a few lines and goes like, What if you were your own knight in fight in shining armor? And that really struck me as being an important, you know, agency in a very primal sense as being something that Than has never really had. Mm-hmm. And to me it was very important that the story then centered on her decisions. Yeah. Well, well, also because what you show in the story is there is potentially another knight in shining armor. You set one up in the story, but that knight in shining armor brings their own agenda, which is ultimately toxic for that. Yeah. And so it is, it's almost like the story says in a very, I think, healthy way, the only way to live a life fully is to be your own knight in shining armor. To take control of your own environment, however difficult that may be, and to be allow yourself to be seen for who you are rather than for who other people want you to be. Yeah, uh, and to me that was very deliberate as well in the way that I like because I know that a lot of people were talking about the romance and the fact that the romance was not believable, and I was like, but that's the whole point, right? The romance yeah. is like all those things that make the romance go. Hang on, that's that make the reader go like, hang on, that's not right. Uh-huh. It is not right. That's well, this is what actually interests me about. This is what interests me about about the way the book's received as well, because in many ways, the only romance in the book is the very, very end. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, or, what, but I mean, the the book is rightfully placed as being a romantic fantasy. Romance plays through it, but all of the romance, right up until that last portion, really isn't romance at all. It's only at that point that you know, and this is why. I understand some of the response I've seen readers are going, they want yeah. more, they want to see more of this. Yeah. And I get it, but I'm also not 100% sure that's a good idea. I kind of uh, feel like I, this I is the story, right? Yeah, no, I, I feel like it needed to be that way. But I understand because, <clears throat> because I made a very deliberate choice to be leaning into some of the uh, art, something that was outwardly that seemed, if you put it on paper and you didn't look at the details, that seemed very romantic because the the relationship that Than has with Eldris is, uh, you know, on paper, it seems like a dream, right? It's the woman who never forgot about her. It's the woman Mm. who comes back for her from the other end of the world. And that is also a very classic pattern of abuser, right? They turn on the charm at the beginning Mm. uh, and then they ramp down the charm and up the abuse and that's something that i really wanted to have happen in the book which was the i deliberately i know you and i had the discussion when it was being edited right about the amount of flags that i should be rising and i kind of felt yeah. i felt after some reflection right that um, it was a sort of atmosphere of like things are never quite right that sort of gets worse and worse yeah. 
from the first moment Eldris walks on stage, right? It starts very like almost innocuous and blink and you miss it. And by the time that you get to the climax, you have seen how you got there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, yeah. All the flags have been raised and and there's there's a number of tricks that are used, right? There's, for instance, in the marriage proposal scene, uh, Eldris is doing all the talking. Than is yeah. doing very little of it, and that's deliberate. Uh, so yeah. there's, you know, that's to me, it's almost kind of a horror, kind of, you know, like you know how kind of in a horror movie you can sort of see it coming, right? The sort of rising yeah. atmosphere of dread. Well, it's kind of like this. It's like, hey, something's not quite right here. No, no, something is still not quite right. It's getting worse. Are you noticing it? Are you watching? It's getting worse. Yeah. And yeah, so I that's think that's one of the ramp things. Up. Uh, the, the, I mean, there's there's obviously a dramatic scene where we realize how wicked this character is. Uh, but then there, as you mentioned, a series of what they now call microaggressions that has happened uh, throughout the story up until then. Uh, so yeah, um, the, yeah, I think, I think the term, I mean, the term I've seen used is flags, right? Red flags yeah. in terms of like, you need to get out of this relationship now. Uh, and a lot of people don't see them, right? That's not, and yeah. that's no shame on them. It's just also partly because we've been conditioned to see this as very, almost very normal. Right or even very romantic, yeah. <laughs> and so. How hard is it when you're telling a story like this one to leave story on toll? I mean, there's a desire in all in readers when you love something that you want something more. Hmm. Uh, you, know, you want another adventure. It, it is one of the great motivations of fan fiction, in fact, and a completely legitimate one. But as a writer, as a storyteller, how hard is it to go? That's actually all of the story that needs to be told, and anything else can't be that again i'm i'm actually relatively fine with that because like you know what i get bored really easily so um (laughs) i i I kind of feel like with every book i should be writing you know something that obviously has some of the same themes and some of the same interests because obviously i'm still the same person right but i I feel like with every book i want to do something a little different with a different focus um and so you know by the time that we actually got to book three of dominion of the fallen i was like I really want to set everything on fire. Oh, wait, I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it's actually relatively easy to just go, well, that's all the story. And also I tend to put my characters through like some really brutal shit. So by the end of it, I kind of feel that it should be given a break. <laughs> you know, but a really I'm... nice tea and some like peace and quiet and, and, and some time to just chill and like relax from if all I the trauma. Yeah. yeah. But so in- while Than is taking a little lie down, um, <laughs> how, do you do you have any interest or desire to write fiction that's closer to the, being set in the real world? Not necessarily mimetic fiction, but fantastical fiction that is actually more directly, clearly mapped to the real world. Or are you happy being able to use? Uh, genre fiction and secondary worlds as a laboratory where you can go through story and ideas without having to be worried about to, to map to things. I can. Yeah, I can. I mean, I want to, but also I realize how complicated and how fraught it would be. Right. I, I did. I started Dominion of the Fallen as like a 21st century, uh, urban fantasy with families of magicians. And I gave up because I just couldn't make it work for me. And I suspect that I'd be having the same problem if I, where to try that again, which is I just start overthinking about the, okay, but, you know, what does that mean for history? Am I, you know, am I harming people by changing the history or by implying that the history has different, more fantastical motivations? And so there's that on the one hand, which is a real concern. And on the other hand, there's 
well, I would like a lot of magic or a lot of spaceships, or I would like more freedom <laughs> to actually have um, a world that is not actually our own that I can use to do some really cool things. Uh, I think if I if I if I had to write some kind of more mimetic fiction, the the closest thing that I would like to write would be some kind of thriller. Um, well, there's uh, there's a fair element of that I think in the Dominion of the Fallen, in the sense that um, I mean I've I've only been to Paris a few times, but I I could negotiate my way around those novels. I could recognize this is here and that's there, and there's the so a, a lot of it is uh, visionary. Uh, Part of it reminded me of John Milton, and part of it reminded me of Victor Hugo. Uh, mm. And the Victor Hugo but, part was pretty much the realistic Paris, which I could recognize from, um, mm. uh, or at least from those classic paintings that Hubert Robert used to do of ruined, uh, future ruined <coughs> Paris and that sort of thing. So I could mm. visualize that as uh, almost a realistic novel, except, of course, there were these angels and things. <laughs> well, they, but, but there's... I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's a complicated line, and I think everybody's going to draw it in different places, and this is where I draw mine, right? But there's there are some elements of Parisian history that I just didn't want to put in into this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a... Uh, I wanted... Uh, at some point, I wanted to talk about the zone, which was the... Uh, the it, Just outside the walls of Paris, you had this kind of half-world, right, of demi-monde, mm-hmm. where... Um, you had people living in a great in great misery and and a lot of gangs as well preying on that misery uh, and forming a kind of parallel economy and parallel structure and so on and I, I gave up because I just didn't I didn't feel it was right and I also didn't feel I would do it justice and I felt like turning it fantastical would be in a way to cheapen what was happening yeah. so it's it's complicated right it's um, and I, and I don't have that with other things so. I don't know. It's again, it's, you know, it's as much about my own comfort levels and what I think is likely to, I don't know, be hurtful for people based on my best guesses and my best perceptions. Do you have a sense that you'd want to write another big trilogy uh, with, with epic supernatural? I mean, that's a genuinely mythic trilogy. And it struck me at the time that it's such a huge structure compared to the, short novels and novellas that uh, that you do so well it seems like two different modes of writing entirely yeah uh i i don't know i just fell into it right you know how it is <laughs> i sold a book and my editor was like we'd like another book <laughs> and then we'd like another book and i was like <laughs> uh well okay um, if you insist <laughs> um i yeah i no, I do feel so. There's been a couple of projects that I've had rattling in my head for a while, and you know, if somebody gives me a chance to do them, I may at some point. One of which would be a, a kind of epic fantasy centered on something called the Lychee Garden Trials, which is a big, fairly large event in Vietnamese history, which resulted in the mass executions of a lot of people at the Vietnamese court following the murder of an emperor. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to take that in an epic and fantastical direction. And I think that would possibly be a kind of at least country spanning thing. Uh, but I haven't actually, you know, sat down and planned anything because right now that's not something I have to worry about. Sounds like and a I've got, fascinating, you know, fascinating idea, though. It it does, but I would need to file a lot of serial numbers, <laughs> though. Because uh, that's uh, Leloy is kind of like uh, he's a saint in Vietnam, and I don't feel that's right to touch that. Mm. So 
yeah lots of serial numbers would need to be taken and i would need to like yank the entire story like out of the realm of i mean plausible deniability no because like everybody would know but certainly far mm. enough that it didn't feel like i just transposed it you ha- you've had a number of novellas published in the last few years as standalone books partly because that's the nature of the market right now the market exists to do that but is that a preferred model for you over full-length novels, or are you just happy to go where the story takes you? Um, it's mostly that I try to write novelettes, and then they sort of grow. Um, and, and you know, all my friends are like, Elliot, we told you, but um, I guess I never learned my lessons. Fireheart Tiger was supposed to be an 8,000-word short story <laughs> that I would, like, put in an anthology that had asked for it and look where it ended. Uh, so <laughs> so that, that's generally how I get a novella. It's like, I'm going to write this quick thing. Oh, wait. Um, <laughs> with a novel is... I mean, in practical terms, one of the things that's nice about a novella, one of the things that's nice about a novella, apart from being a great length of, to, to tell a story in, is that in right now in 2021... It gets a kind of attention as well that mm. it doesn't get if it's a short story in an anthology no, or a magazine. Yeah. I mean, if if you'd written Fireheart Tiger at seven and a half thousand words and sold it anywhere, it probably wouldn't get the same kind of no. readership and attention and marketing yeah. and all those kind of things. Yeah. So that's also got to be, in pure practical terms, an attractive thing. Well, it, it because after all, I mean, I've said for people, yeah, that, there's only that, two that, things that, readers that, writers really want, isn't it? It's like. That would require a great deal more of organization rather read. than, you know, I tried writing a short story. It did not work out. Hi, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me. What, yes, oh. it would make sense. I agree. Tell, tell me what it's really like to work with Jonathan as an editor. <laughs> He's making a fake. You can certainly <laughs> take the Fifth Amendment on that here in the States. No, it's it's great. I mean, what am I supposed to say I about should... this? <laughs> well, I, 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 I know. I wouldn't say a thing. It's fine. <laughs> what I would say, actually, is it's a reasonable point to ask the question, like, what comes next? I mean, uh, in the, ha- the House of Sundry Flames came out about two years, about a year and a half ago, I guess. You've had uh, the, you know, sort of the collection came out around the same time. There's been... Uh, two, two, two novellas last year and Fireheart Tiger this year. What what comes or so far? What what comes next? Uh, so I've got a bunch of other novellas, uh, and then I've got a full length novel in the Suya universe. Which um, uh, well, things happen. A pandemic happened, uh, but which uh, I ought to get back yeah. to. Basically. Yeah. One of the things um, I noticed. Uh, uh, I'm curious about what you grew up reading what you like to read. When I was reading both Seven of Infinities and The Tea Master and The Detective, I was impressed with the respect you showed to the detective story form. And I figured, okay, you must have been reading detective stories because you know your way around them. I've been, yeah, I was reading a lot of them. Um, I I got the Sherlock Holmes story when I was 10, I think, after uh-huh. bugging my parents a lot of time. They thought that, you know, giving me two huge volumes was kind of inappropriate. And I was like, no, 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 I want them. I really <laughs> want them. I still have them. They're on my shelves. Uh, they're beautiful with the original illustrations and and, um, and all that. And they're on this kind of very thin Bible paper. So I grew, like, I grew up reading uh, these uh, Van Gulick's Judge D books, which... Mm-hmm. 
are fascinating actually because uh, he's got afterwards to them which are really detailed about his understanding of what he was writing about and I think he was one of the first people who didn't make me feel like he was writing about weird fake China but actually had a genuine respect for what he was writing. I was wondering um, how those books would hold up today. I read a few of them. I don't remember the afterwards uh, and I remember... Uh, well, so they're very Confucian which is a thing. Uh-huh. Um that includes that position on women, for instance. It, well, he nails yeah. it. It's really bad, though. But he nails it. Um, and I don't... I mean, you have to understand that, like, you know, I'm not Chinese, so I really can't tell how they would hold up in that on that front. Um, mm-hmm. I And I'm reading them as well through, you know, the rose-tinted lenses of... Uh, well, I, mean, I guess my I point is... I read when that, I was a child, right? Yeah, that sort of thing. They seem to show at least an, an effort. I mean, when you're going back forty and fifty years, you don't expect modern sensibilities, but but they were certainly not the same thing as Charlie Chan. Well, actually, Charlie Chan movies were novels too. But I gather those were pretty awful stereotypes, even in, as, as novels. Mm. I I haven't read these, so I wouldn't know. But I certainly know that uh, I was reading a lot of Agatha Christie's when. Uh, when I was a kid, both because, well, they were plentiful and also because we used to go on holidays and that was, it was in the middle of Spain and that was literally the only thing that they had that was vaguely decent mm-hmm. uh, in French. And one of the things which I realized when I was, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15 and which really broke my heart was that uh, actually uh, they were quite racist Right. There's a passage in one of her short stories where there's like an evil woman because she has some, I think it's Indian or Japanese blood. And and the way in which she describes it is this very kind of, you know, obviously she has evil blood and evil magic. It's in one of her fantastical mm. uh, series. Uh, and and I was like, hang on, that's me there. There. Yeah. Not the other characters. Right. And it's it's always to me. I mean, I, I had the same. I've had the same feeling with some of science fiction, where I'm like, "Hang on, I'm the alien, right? That's mm-hmm. actually who I'm supposed to be in there." Uh, and and the rare book that doesn't do that, right? Like uh, Andrew Norton's *Year of the Unicorn*, which I really mm-hmm. love, which has this character who's black-haired and an outsider and coming from war. And I just was like, "Well, she's Vietnamese, clearly." I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's my head canon, and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Or um, David Gemmel's The King Beyond the Gate, which actually does a decent stab at having a mixed race character and showing somebody who's actually struggling to find a place uh, on either side of that divide, which I'm not saying is perfect, but, you know, it's it's got that kind of, like, I understand what it means that resonated with me. Uh, and I can't remember how we got there anyway. But, uh, oh, yeah, so Agatha Christie, like, is one of those authors where I re- I don't think I could reread those ones, right? Where I just go like, okay, that's that was something. I kind uh-huh. of, I yeah, I'm like, okay, so that's where I am, and I I don't think that we have a good relationship anymore. If that makes sense, right? Are you um, even remembering that you may not have noticed all these things yeah. the first time around? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it seems to me that this is part of the. It seems to me this is part of the things not talked about enough <clears throat> when we talk about changes in science fiction in the last decade about changing representation in the field. I mean, about why, I mean, the people who have always been represented well don't understand why you would want to see different representation. Yeah. People who have always seen themselves by default in stories 
don't understand why it's valuable and worthwhile and important to see other people in stories because they've never had to think about it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's part of a conversation we that, were that, having. That seems yeah. to me. Yeah, we were having this conversation with Zen, actually, right, show uh, on Twitter, and we were talking about that that hunger we had when we were 15 or 16, and we really wanted to see some of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and I was commenting that, you know, I I didn't even know what it was, right? I just knew that I was hungry, but I couldn't have named the hunger or why suddenly something just seemed to yeah. like sink really and go like, hey, you don't have to be that hungry. Here's a little, you know, a little bread, a little tea, a little something. So I think <laughs> it's very difficult when you've always, when you've always seen yourselves represented in stories, when you've always had characters who looked like you, when the stories have always been about the people who look like you. It's very difficult to understand the position of people who never saw that. I've, I've, and I'm one of the people who grew up seeing nothing but myself in fiction for a long time. Uh, but I've, I've talked to a number of people who had the reaction of not knowing what you were missing until you saw a hint of it. Um, for example, yeah. Chip Delaney talks about uh, re- reading, I think it was Starship Troopers, and realizing uh, that the main character is a Filipino. And it's not as though, this is a conversation I had with him, which he may not even remember. It's not as though he'd been looking for that, but once he saw the possibility, then he began to notice the absence of these characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's a little bit like taking the, you know, that pill in the matrix and suddenly just not being able to see the world in the same way, right? And the sort of, oh, wait, there's been something severely lacking. And there's been, it's... It's because it's always been that way, right? So you always assume that uh, it took me a long time to understand that people asking where I was coming from was actually not a standard thing. I just assumed that it was normal, right? Well, you're right. And and then, you know, I grew up and I went to university and people stopped asking me the question. And I was like, hang on, actually, hey, maybe that's not everyone's experience. Maybe actually that's, it's really hard to just, well, you know, it's it's so much baked into memories and experience and everything that it gets it just feels very normal that's the way the world has always been so the world should always be that way <laughs> did we hear something yes yeah, so there's there's a protecting those are birds, birds? outside yeah i don't let it the it's dawn, you know we, we, if you start before dawn then birds will sing when the sun comes up right. it's like it's in theory a feature though maybe a bit of a flaw in, a, in the middle of a podcast particularly doing it that loudly right out the door but it might actually be a a useful useful thing right at this point because we are getting towards the end of our hour we should begin to think about winding up Fair. um thank you birds and being frankly oh, 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 oh. held off by a bunch of squabbling honey eaters is probably the way to go but you're you're not Elliot. you would not have remembered this but this is the most interesting intrusion of auditory hallucinations that we've had since we were talking with Karen Lord and the tree frogs outside her home in Barbados were <laughs> invading our our discussion. Well, yeah, tree frogs and motorbikes for some reason. Yes, I right. Wow, well, yeah, yeah, I can anyway, imagine. I want to say just take a moment. Say, <laughs> I would say thank you for making the time to talk to us today. We genuinely appreciate it. Fireheart Tiger by Elliot de Bodard is out in the world now. It's a wonderful, <sighs> fantastical romance that's, that's available in a beautiful book form and an and e-book, and you should seek it out and find it immediately. And there are many other fine books by Elliot as well. She's had, I mean, obviously the, the most recent previous is Seven Infinities, but go look them out. But for the moment, Elliot de Bodard, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. Thank you. That was delightful. Birds included. 
And until the next time, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.